0: First Peter, chapter four, beginning with verse 12. We're going to leap right into the text today um, because we have uh, several things we want to cover. We're involved in a series that we're calling "How to be a Christian in a World of Hurt." Um, that is one of the major themes of First Peter, is suffering. And we come to a paragraph where he is going to summarize his thoughts in this area of how a Christian can suffer well. And so if you have a text, a Bible, open it to 1 Peter chapter 4 and find verse 12. If you don't have a copy of uh, the New Testament, we have uh, English Standard Versions available for free in the back. Please pick one up on your way out. But as we always say, the words will magically appear on the screen so let's read verse 12 beloved now i I love the way uh he starts out here this is this is a shepherd's heart this is peter basically just encircling his arms around this little church to say beloved okay and this this marks the beginning of his closing paragraphs his final thoughts in regard to this letter that he's written to um to the church that is in the area of rome and so uh he says beloveds Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening or were happening to you. Now, when I I read this and went back and began to study this in the original language, I did a double take. Because you see, there are some words in the Greek. There are several words for this idea of being astonished or surprised or amazed or or being shocked. Uh, there, there are several words: thumbeo, uh, existemi. These are commonly used, and they're all over the New Testament. But it's not the words that Peter uses. Peter uses the word xenos. In, in do not be, do not think it's strange, and he uses it twice don't think it's strange or alien and the word picture here is this word picture of of an unexpected guest just arriving at your door that ever happened someone just unexpectedly just comes knocking it's strange they just invite themselves right into your home right right into your life you see that's Peter's not saying that suffering or trials are an unexpected visitor, the force of his thought here, he's saying to the believer, and I, I hope this kind of rocks your world a little bit, maybe correct some of your bad theology. If you become a Christ follower, Peter says, suffering becomes a member of your family, not an unexpected guest. It moves in and it lives with you. That's what Peter's saying to the church. Now that's a little different, isn't it? Whoa, what did I sign up for when I became a Christ follower? Suffering has moved in. Not an unwelcome stranger, not an infrequent guest, um, that you just can't wait to leave so you can wash all the sheets and you know vacuum up the mess they left behind, you know, and get back to living. Trust me. Joel Osteen's not preaching this text this morning, okay? Suffering can really mess up your life. But see, suffering moves in and it keeps leaving its mess. That's what Peter's saying. Don't think it's strange, alien. Don't think that suffering is an uninvited guest. It's not strange at all. Suffering, when you become a Christ follower, moves in, becomes part of the family. Now, keep in mind, Peter is writing to the church there in the area around Rome beginning to suffer persecution under Emperor Nero. Nero was just the first of ten Roman emperors that launched major persecutions on the church. For 200 years, the church lived under persecution until finally the church won out. And Constantine, Emperor Constantine, confessed faith in Christ and became a Christian. Why? well a major influence was the fact that the church suffered well as we'll see in the text now this is not a new idea to peter but i want you to compare this statement in verse 12 you know don't think of it as 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 don't be surprised at the fiery trial that is coming upon you to test you as though something strange were happened to you now listen to what he says in first peter at chapter 1, as he introduces the theme of suffering to the letter. In this you rejoice, he said, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the, the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that, per- that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, a Christian comes to understand suffering from a different viewpoint. And once we develop a theology of suffering, that helps us tremendously. That takes care of about 60 to 70% of the problem. When we just finally come to accept the reality of of suffering, you see, And, and the nature of suffering Peter describes is simply this, fire. Fire. Now, it's a particular word he uses in the original language in the Greek New Testament. It's the word "pyrosis." Pyrosis. It's a refining fire. We get the word purity from that same idea. You see, it conjures up the, it conjures up the picture that Peter gives us in chapter 1 and here again in chapter 4. When, when you want to separate a precious metal from the ore, what do you do? You have to heat it to very intense levels so that you can separate pure metal from the dross, so you can take what is true away from what is false, so that you can take what is good away from what is bad, so you can leave only what is pure and precious and lasting. And so Peter is saying, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. It's a purifying flame. It's... There's a purpose that is behind it. God intends to purify and refine and to shape and to transform you through suffering. And if you think about that, where the most, the most um, let's say, fruitful change has come in your life, Has it been during times of of ease and comfort when everything is going your way? Or has, has it been true of you as it is of so many? That the real refinement, the real change, the real transformation comes when we are under pressure, when we are in the fire and we realize that we are not alone In the fire. So don't be don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, he says. It's a test. You see, when you become a Christian, you get enrolled in his class, suffering 101, if you will. There will be regular tests and sometimes pop quizzes. Do you get it? And a trial is sort of a, fo- a forced choice quiz. It forces us to choose who or what we will trust in, what we will what we will ultimately believe. And so you take this text in First Peter chapter four, along with the text in James chapter one. You remember James chapter one? Let me just refresh your memory. Here it is on the screen. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. James says, consider it pure joy when you suffer. So, so the first thing is to expect suffering. I want to talk about these three words. What we expect, okay, then I want to talk about what we exult in and then what we examine. Expect, exult, and examine. And Peter says the expectation is that we will suffer. We are enrolled in that school, in Suffering 101. And he says the response is what? James says it respond. Count it pure joy. Look at what Peter says in the next verse. Okay? Verse thirteen. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad. Right When his glory is revealed, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There's a shock. You see, James says rejoice once. Peter says gives us four words for this idea of exultation or joy or the expression of, of, uh, of contentment. Twice he uses the word for joy from the root word of kara, to rejoice. Then the word for exultation, to be glad. So just circle those, okay? That word blessed is the word makaros. It's the same word Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he gives us those statements. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are Those are statements. Jesus is not talking about happiness that is happenstantial or circumstantial. He's talking about there's a deep sense of wellness and contentment. And so Peter is saying, when you suffer, your response is to rejoice, to rejoice, to be glad, and to feel blessed. Four times. And then, to top it off, he gives us four reasons. To be glad. Four reasons. To be glad. Here's the first. Our suffering will deepen our fellowship with Christ. Verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. The word share there is the word in the original language for partnership or for fellowship. It's the word, you've heard it, koinonia, when you suffer, you find yourself in fellowship with Christ. So, you, you, how many of us want to get closer to Christ? Do you, do you really want to be closer to Christ? Okay, so let's just say here's 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 me over here, okay, and here's Christ over here, right? Okay, ready? And you want to? And you say you want to get closer to Christ? You know what Peter is saying is that here's here's how you get closer to Christ: suffer. Suffer. Suffer some more. And when you have accepted suffering, you will look up and find yourself right next to Him in partnership, in fellowship with Him. That's one of the reasons for joy, so that I may experience Him. I love C.S. Lewis in the problem of pain let me let me just read you what he writes he said he said i am progressing along the path of life in my ordinary contented fallen and godless condition absorbed in the merry meeting of my friends for the morrow or a bit of work that tickles my vanity today or 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 planning a holiday or or even writing a new book when suddenly Suddenly a stab of abdominal pain threatens me with some serious disease. Or the headline in the newspapers threatens us all with destruction. And since our this whole pack of cards just tumbling down, at first he says, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. And all of my little happinesses look like just broken toys. And then slowly and reluctantly and bit by bit, I try to bring Myself into the frame of mind that I should be at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart. That my true good is another world and my only real treasure is Christ himself and perhaps by god's grace i succeed for a day or two and i become a creature who is consciously dependent upon god and i am drawing my strength uh, uh, from the right sources but the moment the threat is taken away or the threat is withdrawn my whole nature my whole nature excuse me leaps back to the toys Sound familiar? The intent of suffering is to move us from toys into his joys. And the first is he deepens our fellowship with Christ in suffering. Second, our suffering heightens our glory in the future. There are two great themes in the, the letter of 1 Peter. One is suffering. And there are numerous different descriptive words for what the church is going through in their suffering. And the second theme is the word doxa, glory. The promise of glory. It's found 14 times in these five chapters. And, and so they are twin truths that walk together through the letter of First Peter, suffering and glory. And Peter says, if you suffer, it will heighten the glory that you will experience. If you suffer willingly and if you suffer well, it will heighten that sense of glory and expectation for what the future holds for you when you're reunited with Him. I like what Warren Wearsby says. We need to understand, he said, that suffering does not, or glory, excuse me, that glory does not replace suffering. He will transform suffering in our lives into glory. And the illustration that Jesus used was the illustration of a woman giving birth in John 16. The same baby that gave her great pain now gives her great joy. I like that. We've got a new baby here today. A little bit painful, wasn't it, Christina? Yeah. She stepped out because the baby started crying. I told her, just let that baby talk back to me. Dang it. But that same pain... That is experienced giving birth. And all you, the dads, I know you're tuning out here. You don't get it. But the women in the room get this illustration. I'll tell one about sports or baseball in a little bit, okay? But that pain that a woman experiences in childbirth gives forth, it becomes transformed into incredible joy when that baby is laid upon her breast. Wow. our suffering heightens our glory in the future our suffering number three brings us the ministry of the holy spirit our suffering brings about in us fresh ministry from the holy spirit the experience of the presence of god in our life and and it's the shekinah glory of god that you know that That somehow becomes a part of our inward experience in the midst of suffering. Listen to what he says. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And last, our suffering. Our suffering gives us opportunity to bring glory to his name to make his name great amongst others verse 16 yet if anyone suffers as a Christian let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name now there are only three places in the New Testament where the word Christian appears Believers were first called the way followers of the way it was not until Acts chapter 11 That they were labeled as Christian in the Gentile church in Antioch and it was not a kind word It was a derogatory term You you get that Christian means little Christ. Well, who do you think you are some kind of little Christ? it was used as an insult it's found again in acts chapter 26 it's found only one other place in the new testament and that is here in chapter 4 of first peter when he says if anyone suffers as a as a christian the term has stuck and by the time peter writes this letter that derogatory term that insult has been Accepted and adopted. The church decided, wow, it's an honor to be called a Christian. To be associated with his name. Suffering gives us opportunity to bring honor and glory to his name. Okay, last thing. What are we to expect? We expect suffering to move in. Part of the family. What do we do with suffering? We exult. We rejoice when we suffer. Because we know suffering is not without meaning. And then Peter warns, we need to examine. Listen to what he says in verse 15 through 17. But let none of you suffer As a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler, or a busybody, or a gossip. I think it's interesting that you have a pretty interesting kind of list there. Most of us would put murderer out there at the front of the list. Man, that's a really bad thing, but being a busybody, a gossip? He said, let none, none of you suffer for any of those things. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the name. For it is time for the judgment, for judgment to begin in the household of God. Okay. I got to get a drink. Are you Ready? What is today? It's Palm Sunday. What happened on Palm Sunday? Jesus, his much-anticipated arrival, happens on that Sunday, a week prior to the beginning of Passover. The streets are full of people. And Jesus comes riding on a donkey and they literally break the branches off of the palms and begin to throw their coats down and, the, and throw down the branches as a symbol of their nationalism. For Jesus, as He comes right into Jerusalem, there are two things that Jesus did on Palm Sunday. One of them was He rode into Jerusalem amidst a great deal of cheering and celebration. The second thing He did is recorded for us in in very brief sentence summary in Mark chapter 6. Or no, Mark chapter 11. And verse 11, listen, this is the second thing Jesus did. And he entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple. And when he had looked at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Judgment begins in the household of God. You see, every Passover, every Jewish household... goes through a thorough spring cleaning. Kitchen cupboards are scrubbed down all the way back into the the little corners and walls are washed, floor to ceiling, and floors are swept and mopped and then re-swept. And all of this sweeping, all of this scrubbing wasn't to get rid of dirt, was it? What were they trying to get rid of? Yeast. They had to get all the yeast out of the house. Not even the smallest mount could be allowed to stay in the house. The law was very specific and the penalty was very severe. So removing all the yeast was very serious business and it involved the whole family so that together they could remember and they could retell the story of the Passover. How, how in this hurried departure from Egypt they were instructed by God not to bake bread with yeast. There was not time for the bread to rise. They had to be ready to move instantaneously at the voice of God and the instruction of God and so they baked this Passover meal and they removed all yeast and so the night before the Passover meal in a Jewish family the father the father would do what he would light a candle There's actually a lot of wind up here on stage. The A.C. works pretty good in this room. What would the father do? He would light a candle and then methodically and meticulously he would inspect the whole house. He would go into every Corner of every room in the house, he would get down on his hands and knees and slide the candle under the cupboards and under every piece of furniture, because they had to get the yeast out. And so, and so it was that. Every Passover, every Jewish house was immaculate except for one. In the hustle and the fury of preparations for the feast, one house was overlooked and it was the house of God, wasn't it? And so on Monday morning, Jesus shortly after sunrise, returned to the temple. What do you think he saw when it says in Mark 11 that he looked at everything? He saw what Jewish historians described as the bazaars of Annas in a very unkind and critical way. Of the leadership in, of religion in his day, literally they had taken the outer court reserved for the prayers of Gentile pilgrims to the feast, and they had turned it into a place of commerce, a flea market. They were selling animals. They were they were uh, they, they were inspecting uh you know these these animals in order to 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 force people into buying uh, their sacrificial animals from them and and they required that 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 roman money had to be transferred into jewish coinage uh and 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 uh with you know with a, with a surcharge so that they that they they had money changers that 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 set up their tables right there in that court you know what happens, don't you? You remember. He sized up the situation on Sunday afternoon. He knew exactly what he was doing. He cursed the fig tree on the way into town for the disciples so the disciples would have a symbol of what it means to live an unfruitful life. And then he goes to the temple... And he takes some of the tethers off of one of the tables there, you know, where someone is selling lambs or or goats and he ties them together and he swings them up over his head and he cries out and he begins, he begins to make a path through the flocks and the herds and scatters them everywhere, running them, herding them out of the temple. He goes over to the tables of the money changers and he begins to kick them over. Judgment, he says, begins at the house of God. You remember the story. Here's my question for you, Christian. When was the last time he kicked over any tables in your life? The New Testament says we are the house of God we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and if we allow any dross any falsehood any impurity to be housed and continue to be housed and live there and just and we get comfortable with it and we get, let me just ask you, based on the story in the Gospels, is Jesus casual about sin? No, he's not. Not at all. And if you allow any sinful attitude, thought or action to inhabit where his spirit longs to inhabit. You will not suffer well. You will suffer, but you won't suffer well. So here's my challenge to you, Christian. You were given a candle when you walked in today. My job as pastor is to just hand you a match. We're not going to light candles in here today, but I'm going to challenge you this week. Monday would be a good day. That's the day he cleaned house. That you set aside a time to get quietly in a private place. Are you listening? You get quietly in a private place and you renew your commitment to him. And you ask him by his spirit to examine your heart. And if there are any toys that are replacing the joys, if there's any habit, any thought, if there's anything in your life that has created a barrier between you, maybe there's a complaint that you have lodged and continue to lodge because you're sick and tired of suffering. I don't know what it is, but I'm saying, but I'm just saying that candle is for you. And I would suggest take it, set it somewhere in a quiet place away from everyone else and light. That candle, and you stay and let the Spirit of God then take in every nook and every cranny of your life and under every cupboard in your life. And you, and, and now I'm not asking you to be a, you know morbid about that and try to invent things because I believe the Holy Spirit in us, the Spirit of Jesus that lives in us, will convict us very specifically. And some of us will do, will go. We'll try to do an end run, you know, and we'll want to confess ten things that aren't the real thing, right? Because here's the, re- the Spirit will say, there's the real thing. Deal with that. Oh, but Lord, you know I'm such a terrible person. The Spirit of God, I trust, is going to bring you back. Because listen, Christ wants a church that is pure. He wants a people whose lives are transformed by grace. And grace is not just forgiveness of sin. Grace is the power by which we live and what transforms us into His likeness so that we become more and more like Him. And so the fire, the intensity of fire is is intended to burn off the dross of our lives. The impurities. You see, Christ in the temple that day. He smelled the stench of animals. Their their defecation, their urine. But trust me, the smell of his, in his nostrils that was the, the most difficult for him to deal with was the smell of false, bad religion. I challenge you. You set aside time, 15, 20 minutes, and you say, Lord, I want you to shine your light in every crevice and corner of my life. Because I'm going to move toward Easter. I want to prepare for Easter. In such a way that I don't allow anything to come between you and I. Okay, I've got to close. Last verses. Verse 17 through 19. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will, the outcome, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, that's a loaded statement right there. You know, our sins are what separated us from Christ. But the only thing that's keeping us now separated after his death on a cross for us is our unwillingness to believe the gospel, the good news, the truth. It's the word euangelion there. What will happen to those who do not obey, who do not listen, who do not accept the gospel? His saving word? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. The word entrust there is the very same word Jesus uses, the very last statement on the cross, you know, in in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 23, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit, I entrust my spirit. Same word. Joseph of Messiah he was a tall slender man he was a warrior his face had all the ritual scars of every young man that every young man received in his passage into manhood he killed his first lion with only a spear and a shield out in the you know in the barren regions But the scars on his face were not what make Joseph special. You see, Joseph one day was walking along a hot, dusty African road and someone shared the good news of Jesus with him. Then and there on a hot dusty road, he accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began to transform his life from within. He was filled with excitement and with joy. And the first thing he wanted to do was to go back, return to his home village so he could share the good news of Jesus with his local tribe. And so he began going door to door telling everyone about the cross of Jesus and the salvation that it offered. He expected some, he expected their faces to light up in the same way that his had, And to his amazement, the villagers were not, they not only didn't care, they they became hostile. The men of his little village, they seized him. They held him to the ground while the women began to beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from that village. He was left to die in the bush. But Joseph somehow managed to crawl into a water hole. And after two days of passing in and out from consciousness, he found his strength returning. He was able to get up. He still wondered about the hostile reception he'd received from his own people, the ones he had known all of his life. And he decided that he must have left something out of the story. That he, that he told the story of Jesus wrong. And so he, so he went back in his mind and he re- rehearsed the, the good news, the message over and over again and decided to go back to the village to share his faith once more. And so he comes limping back into the circle of huts and he began to proclaim the good news about Jesus. He died for you that you might, you might find forgiveness, that you might come to know the living God. He pleaded once again. The men of the village grabbed him and they held him down and the women beat him for a second time and they opened up all of the wounds from, the, from his previous beating that had begun to heal, and one more time they drug him unconscious and beaten from the village, and they left him in a ditch to die. To, to uh, survive the first beating was remarkable. To survive the second beating was a miracle. Days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, he was bruised, he was scarred, but more determined than ever. And so for the third time, he walked back into that small village. This time, he found everyone waiting for him. They had attacked him before, even before he'd had a chance to open his mouth But as they began this time to flog him for the third and the last time, he began to speak to them as they beat him of Jesus Christ, the Lord who had the power to forgive sin and to give them new life. And the last thing that he remembered before he passed out was seeing a woman standing over him beating him who began to weep and so this time several days later when he awoke he was in his own bed and not in the wilderness the very ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life And nurse him back to health. An entire village of the Messiah. Had come to Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus.